This morning, I want to begin preaching through the Gospel of Luke. There are plenty of people listed in Luke's Gospel that were amazed. Zechariah's friends and, and the shepherds, and, and those who heard from the shepherds, and Joseph and Mary, and the people who lived in Nazareth, and those at Capernaum, those who heard Jesus teach when he was a boy, the disciples, and even the Pharisees, all of these people were amazed. They were astonished. They were in awe of Jesus. Some believed in Jesus, and some didn't. And this book, the Gospel of Luke, hinges on belief and certainty. It truly matters what you believe about God and Jesus. And, and now, so he writes this three decades later. Luke then interviews person after person to compile the longest book in the New Testament to share of their amazement. People who I'm sure at that point were still struggling to put into words of the amazement that they saw in Jesus. Even after 30 years away from the event that was Jesus' life, Luke even finds himself still amazed. And so I'm praying that as we engage in the text of Luke for the rest of 2020 and into 2021, um, I pray that we'll rediscover a sense of wonder and, and amazement at this remarkable, mysterious, and amazing person called Jesus. Perhaps even with Luke, we might call the world to answer also, isn't Jesus amazing? After all, Martin Luther was right. Bewilderment is true comprehension. I encourage you to take this journey with me through the amazement of Luke's gospel, and I pray that you'll be changed through it. So if you haven't already, turn with me to the gospel of Luke. Are we doing all right back here, peeps? Can you guys hear me okay? All right, we're going to keep going. Everything's moving. So this is why we wanted to have a week to get any bugs that might come up worked up. So... Uh, we're going to look at Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. And uh, I want to give you a main idea of what I'm looking for here. So if you're going to write down anything, anything at all in this sermon, I want you to write down this, okay? And I'll repeat it. Your beliefs about God will shape how you respond to the issues in this world. Let me say it again. Your beliefs about God will shape how you respond to the issues in this world. Unbelief is the practical denial of God's almighty power. And Luke writes his account so that you and I will have certainty concerning Christ and his power for life. So I have two points there. And the main point again, I'll say it again. Your beliefs about God will shape how you respond to the issues in this world. And so first is the certainty of truth. The certainty of truth. And second, the certainty of God. So the first is a much shorter point, verses 1 through 4, the certainty of truth. And second, the certainty of God. So let's dive in here. The first one, the certainty of truth. And the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke give us plainly the purpose of this book. Why, why, why is Luke writing? He says here, in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all, all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. As I said earlier, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And he is on a fact-finding mission 
And in one long sentence here, he tells us what kind of book he wants to write. One that would help people to be more certain of their salvation in Jesus Christ. And to do this, Luke sets out to write a historically accurate and carefully researched and well-organized gospel. Luke was not an apostle, and he chooses his apostles then to interview, to help compile this record of Jesus' life and ministry. And Luke leans heavily on other gospel writers, and yet he's, he's also able to stand on his own two feet. See, Mark was a storyteller, and John was a philosopher, but Luke, Luke was an investigative reporter. And the result of his work, we are given a rich account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Luke also was a medical doctor. You could call him Dr. Luke. And he had a medical background and a gift for observation. That makes a good doctor. Luke noticed things that other people would overlook. Almost 6% though of Luke's gospel came from Mark. And Luke doesn't just check out, he brings new information to the table. It's, it's from Luke that we, we learn about the birth of John the Baptist. And we learn about the infancy of Jesus. With all likelihood, he interviewed their mothers. It is the Gospel of Luke that we read parables of the Good Samaritan. We read about the prodigal son, and the Pharisee, and the publican. But only Luke tells us what, what Jesus preached on the road, of, the road to Emmaus. And only Luke gives us the needed portraits of women that dedicated their lives to follow Jesus, of Elizabeth, and Mary, and Anna, and Mary, and Martha. The Gospel of Luke bears all of the marks of authentic history. And so it reassures us, as the reader, that we are reading a real story of Jesus. So all of the four Gospels were inspired by God's Spirit, so there should be a strong draw for us as Christians to read them. But for those of you that are, are watching that you're curious about Christianity, Luke says to you that he has carefully compiled an orderly account so that you can understand and believe in Jesus Christ. And friends, in that, it means Christianity can be tested. You can set out to understand the validity of Luke's gospel. It can handle your questions. All of them you can throw at it. And so, because it can be tested, it can be trusted. And if you've ever been told that to be a Christian, you have to check your mind at the door, you've been lied to. You bring your mind to this book in your heart, and you will walk away fully satisfied in God. There have been many throughout the centuries that have tried to disprove Luke and the rest of the Gospels, and they walk away unsatisfied. So if you're questioning Christianity, go ahead and ask your questions, all of them, and then go hard, honestly, towards the answers. So let me ask, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in for all your life? What do you believe? Do your beliefs offer you the same kind of certainty that Jesus does. I'm not asking if you feel certain about what you believe. I'm not asking about the beliefs themselves. Are your beliefs certain to be true? Can you verify your beliefs with history and eyewitness accounts and fulfilled prophecy? Or is the only authority for your beliefs is the fact that you believe it or imagine it to be true and you want it to be so? But furthermore, do you really want to base your entire life on earth and risk everything, heaven and hell, on your own thoughts? 
Before you risk everything, consider how little we know as finite, limited, imperfect human beings. And then consider the Loctite biblical historical evidence. So I ask, where is your faith resting this morning? And I pray that it's resting on Jesus. And for you Christians, Luke says that this gospel was written so that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And he's writing to us Christians who are familiar with the promises of God. And Luke is writing about the outworking of our past hopes and based on good evidence to provide assurance to the reader. So this book is for you Christians. And a Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what the Bible says he did. You cannot be a Christian and deny Jesus. You cannot be a Christian and deny the Bible and its implications in your life. And if you've noticed here in these verses that I read, Luke writes an orderly account. Not, not, not only do we have it read it, but specifically it was read, written for a certain person. Did you catch that? It's written for most excellent Theophilus. And who was that? Well, we don't know much about him. He was most likely a high-ranking person. Many skilled Bible teachers have debated this man and who he is for years. We don't know. My best guess is he was a dignitary, that he was wanting to learn and grow in, in his knowledge of Jesus. And so Luke does a great service, not only for, for him, but for the people of God, by giving this detailed account of Jesus. And if you look closely, Luke mentions Theophilus, which, by the way, his, knee, his name means lover of God. And the next phrase, it says that, that you may have certainty, and that you is the one who loves God. It's the same kind of name that Luke might have used to describe anyone who wants to have a relationship with God. So, so who is Theophilus? Well, you are, if you love God and are loved by Him. Luke's gospel is for you. So that's the, the purpose of this book. It will bring certainty for truth. So that's point number one. Point number two. The certainty of God. And this is from verses 5 through 25. Let's look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. See, Luke begins the story by mentioning Herod. And, and a chill should run down your spine when this monster's name is mentioned. Herod was an evil tyrant who hated people, destroyed them, and looked to set himself up as sovereign. And this is the time frame when the story begins. Luke goes back 60 years to set the stage. And he tells us of this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then he says in verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Zechariah's name means Yahweh has remembered and he's mentioned first. He's from the line of Abijah, and you can read about that in 1 Chronicles 24.10. And Elizabeth is from the line of Aaron. And verse 6 might seem strange to include, but Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't perfect. That's not what the author, that's not what Luke's saying here. They, they weren't sinless, but just living in accordance to the law. You might even think of Luke and his wife as this old country pastor and his wife, living out their years, nearing retirement, distinguished in their godliness with a right relationship with God. They were, as Elizabeth Elliot says in that book that I mentioned earlier, they were seven-day-a-week Christians. I like that. That was Zachariah and Elizabeth. And yet God had not saw fit to give them a child. 
You know, as a man reading this and considering this week, I come away thinking and feeling different. I love my children, don't get me wrong, but without children, there is no whining at 6 a.m. Dad, can you make this for me? I still love my kids, but as a, as a man, I think through this differently. And, and it's not about me. Because as Christians, we should continually strive to understand the troubles and the issues that others are facing. It should be a practice for us. So any woman who has ever wanted a child and hasn't had one knows what Elizabeth must have endured. The prying questions, the insensitive remarks, the sharp pain of desire for someone else's baby, the nagging doubts about the goodness of God. But for Elizabeth, there was something even more, the suggestion in this culture that somehow all of this was her fault. So I believe that's why Luke writes that for us. He says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. See, barren didn't equal sinful. The Elizabeth situation for me reminds me of Hannah and 1 Samuel and Sarah with Abraham in Genesis 16. There was a stigma that people endured during this time to be viewed that God was somehow against them. People would look at her with reproach, like she was ungodly. But Luke tells us otherwise. Elizabeth was righteous in the eyes of God. Sometimes we suffer because of sin. But sometimes we suffer for the exact opposite reason, for the sake of righteousness. All suffering is meant to push us into God so that we will glorify Him. And we read here very clearly that Elizabeth was barren for the glory of God. God was not punishing her. Instead, He had something very important for her and the spiritual legacy of their family. And so the the question to ask during suffering isn't, what did I do to deserve this? The question is, how can I glorify God through this? Elizabeth teaches all of us this morning. You notice, she didn't wait to begin her life because she didn't have a child that she was desperately praying for and wanting. Instead, along with her husband, she followed and obeyed the Lord for years, walking blamelessly in His commandments, She did the next thing, and they kept following the Lord. Look at verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And Zechariah was a priest, and in his day, Israel's priests were divided into 24 divisions, with each division serving the temple on a rotating basis for two weeks a year. So here's Zechariah serving at the temple in his rotation with the other priests, and his name now is chosen. Every day two priests were chosen to enter the holy place and to offer incense as Israel's sweet altar on prayer, and and one would go in the morning and one in the afternoon, and and they were a lot of priests, and so they were chosen by lots. And what are lots? Lots could be sticks or markings or stones with symbols on them, and each were thrown into a small area, and then the result was interpreted. You know, we just, I mentioned this morning at the beginning of the service, and we sent out a letter stating we're beginning services here next week with a, with a cap on attendees for the time being. And my thought is, what better way 
to understand what it means to be in Zachariah's shoes than for us to cast lots. So, um, Bob Pilch, thanks for the recommendation. Elders, you just let me know what you think here. I mean, if it's good enough for the priests, right, it should be good enough for us. No more first come, first serve. We'll just choose at random, right? Doesn't it sound right? Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So God, here, in a way he's saying in this, all this is God is sovereign. God is sovereign in the choosing of Zechariah. That's what we see here. But, but for Zechariah, this was even more important, okay? This was actually the best day of his life. See, the providence of God fell on him. And he was chosen to go in and light the incense. And this was the greatest moment in his priestly career because once a priest was chosen, he was ineligible to serve again. And there were so many priests who were never chosen in their career. So look down at verse 10. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of the incense, and there appeared to him, this is Zechariah inside, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the room. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. See, there's a large amount of people waiting outside, and he goes in that day. And this would be a revolutionary day for God's people. See, this was the day that God would break his silence with his people. And God breaks through with his messenger to bring news. And you need to recognize, friends, how, how monumental this day was for God's people. And Zechariah, when he sees the angel, is afraid. Why? Because every time an angel comes, people freak out. Every single time. Angels come onto the scene. People are fearful. So all those Christmas decorations that you see of angels are lying to you. That's not what we see. They're not accurate. In the scriptures, every time they're fearful. It's startling. But then the angel says here in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And from this announcement, we could, we could surmise that Zechariah was praying in the temple for a child because he indicates the gift of a son named John. But I don't buy it. I don't believe that's what he was praying for. Zechariah was an elderly man with, with a well-known barren wife. And he had been given a chance, a gift, for a lifetime of a priest to go in. And I wonder even if the option to have a child even entered his mind those moments. No, no, I, I believe, believe with all my heart that Zachariah was praying for the redemption of Israel. That's, That's what's going on in his mind. His, his life work was a priest for God's people. That's what his focus was, not himself. And Gabriel then answers, and I believe confirms it. He says in verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, God is speaking now to his people through Gabriel. His messenger has come. God still hears prayers. He will not be silent. They will have joy and gladness, and many others will rejoice at his birth. <clears throat> not only because Zechariah and Elizabeth were old and having a child, 
because of what John was going to do. He was the forerunner to the Savior. You know, if we stop right here, these three statements in verse 13 and 14 would, in, would include almost every human being's want and need for life, to, to not be afraid, to have a family, and to be happy. And how often we settle for such a small prize from God. But John here, his, he's going to be great. And the description of John has always confused teachers. The, the angels say he won't touch strong drink or wine, not because he was going to be a preacher. Simply because John's behavior would be so strange. God didn't want his behavior to be mistaken as a filling by any other spirits or control. Other prophets had been anointed by the Spirit, but John was the first to be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. He would be different in every way. And so Gabriel here is, is signaling that the time is now to break his silence with his people. That God would fulfill his promises that he had made before with Israel. God would use Zechariah's son to spark a re revival in his people. And the angel speaking to Zechariah was a historic and monumental moment in the history of salvation. Not since the last word spoken in the Old Testament in Malachi has God spoken. It had been over 400 years. God was speaking and he was telling Zechariah that his soon-to-be son would be the forerunner to the Messiah. That he would prepare the way. You know, we've been out of church for over three months, which seems gathered together and hear the word of God proclaimed. But can you imagine 400 years to not hear anything? And so this day is monumental. But how does Zechariah respond? Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You know, his response is almost comical. A celestial visitor has just met him on the most important day of his life, serving the temple and tells him to expect his wife to be pregnant, to fulfill an ancient prophecy about Elijah's coming to prepare their way for the Lord. And yet his first thought is, how in the world is my elderly wife going to get pregnant? Seeing and hearing wasn't enough. Now he wants proof. Zechariah is us. His problems are our problems. His eyes are too weak to see God's power. You know, I learned this from my daughter, Madeline. If you hold up a quarter over your eye during the middle of the day, when the sun is out and the sun is big as could be, and, and if you hold it just far enough away, you'll block out the entire sun. Go ahead and try it today if the sun comes out. You can block out the entire sun. And we sometimes hold our problems and limitations to our eyes in that way. Bringing them so close to our eyes that we cannot see the great glowing sun of God's promises and God's power. We miss it. And how often we forget the promises and power of God. Did he not remember Abraham and the same issue that he had? You know, friends, we can be a righteous person in the holiest of places, serving God with all that we have, giving back to God holy worship, and still not believe God. Unbelief is really that sneaky. And we're all susceptible. You can be a preacher sharing the gospel every Sunday and believe that no one will get saved. You can be a parent 
raising those kids to love God and read their read his word and believe that it's a waste because they don't get it as quick as you want. And you can be married and not believe that your spouse is actually God's special gift to you. And you can pray and pray for our heart's deepest desires and when it comes, we don't believe it. This is Zachariah. And this is all of us. We are like Zechariah. Well, the angel responds in verse 19 and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And I love this response. Gabriel doesn't even answer him. He just tells him the good news. There's also, though, a consequence for his unbelief. He says in verse 20, Behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you do not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. See, Zechariah wants another sign, and Gabe's like, dude, seriously, don't you get who I am? Don't you know who I work for? You, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You won't be able to talk. And how I wish God would still do that today. Because how many of us need our mouths shut by God? Because we refuse to believe him. And Zechariah's silence would be a daily, moment-by-moment sign that God has not been silent anymore. You know, to me, it's, it's an ironic judgment. He was unable to speak just like he thought God was unable to speak. So friends, don't be like Zechariah here. Don't make God close your mouth because of unbelief. And from my own my non-Christian friends, my unbelievers, God will do this one day. The Bible says emphatically that on that final day, the day of judgment, every mouth will be closed. There will be no rebuttal, no wisecrack, no appeal, no defense. The God of the universe has and will do all things well, including bringing justice on that final day. And so it's better to receive his word today than to doubt it. Well, the judgment comes at verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering as to delay in the temple. In verse 22, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision of the temple. And he kept making signs to them, remained mute. He had to learn sign language while he was in there. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. The part of his duty as a priest was to come out and pronounce a benediction like I do at the end of every service. Perhaps this was taken from number six. And so he comes out and he sees the people, but he can't speak. It's just silence. His magnificent day was done, and now he walks away unable to talk. He couldn't even describe his dear wife all that had happened. It says in verse 24, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And you might think that Zachariah's punishment seems unfair. I mean, his question about his aging wife seemed unfair. I mean, how was she pregnant? But Gabriel's answer shows us that it wasn't curiosity. It was unbelief. Charles Spurgeon said, We often talk of unbelief as if it were an affliction to be pitied instead of a crime to be condemned. 
Unbelief shouldn't be glamorized. It is a sin to be repented of. Elizabeth's response was different than her husband's. She recognizes the Lord. She praises God for silencing the critics in her life. You see, she says to, that they would take away, that the Lord would take away my reproach among people. So God not only silenced Zechariah, he silenced others. But unbelief in the certainty of God can be soul-crushing. Few sins appear to be so provoking to God as the sin of unbelief. It was the first sin in the garden with a man and woman staring and looking at a piece of fruit while a serpent spoke lies. Unbelief, it's the practical denial of God's almighty power. It is giving into the lie to God to doubt whether he can do something or not. Through the 40 years of wandering in the desert by God's people should never be forgotten by professing Christians today. The author of Hebrews chapter 3 verse 19 says they were unable to enter because of unbelief. As I said in the beginning, the main idea here, your beliefs about God shapes how you respond to this world. Living in unbelief is a soul-ruining sin and robs us of an inward peace. When God announces good news, it always comes true. Gabriel announced the promises that would be fulfilled at the right time, and they were. Elizabeth believed God, and so should we. And this is what God wants from us, faith. He wants us to take him at his word. So friends, whatever God's word says, believe it. He has said that Jesus died and rose again, so believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection. He has said that he will forgive anyone who comes to him in faith in Jesus. So if you're a sinner, still in your sin, believe in Jesus and know that your sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And God says he will never leave you nor forsake you. So whatever you're facing right now, friends, believe in God. And he says that he's coming back for his people. And believe that God will do exactly as he says. And I pray that you will believe God and go and serve him this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to begin this journey through Luke's great work for us. And I ask that you would give us perseverance, for the way seems long and difficult. Give us focus so we might be able to shut out the noise and busyness and chaos of this world that we would just, that would distract us from, from learning from you and leaning into you. And give us peace when we're confronted every week by the disturbing nature of your kingdom and the apostle demands of your call. May we take seriously the words of Luke, your spoken word to us. Give us gospel-powered imaginations that we may see and feel and hear your word and your voice and your call and your great love for us. And we ask that you would go with us as we leave this time that we glorify you this week and all that we do and say. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.